Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Yeah, buddy, happy Thursday morning. This is the Tropical MBA podcast. This one is at tropicalmba.com slash valet parking, wherein we reveal... I, have we talked about the valet parking niche yet on this program, Ian? I don't think so. We've been very elusive, Dan. We've been a little elusive, and today is a day where we're going to go nuts and bolts, uh, open kimono. We're going to just jump right in and share the business that set us free at the very beginning, the actual business that... Uh, had the the biggest success out of the gate and the one that uh, got us this lifestyle uh, that we have been appreciating for the last few years. Yeah, buddy. it's uh, it's It's been six years in the making, man. I think we started in 2008, so we've been going on it for a long time. And uh, yeah, let's start talking about it. Why not? It's only been six years. What the heck? It's only been six years. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got a phone number. It's 888-554-8400. Two eight and this week, David McKeegan from Greenback Tax Services called us to let us know about an important new tax provision that expats need to know about. Hey guys, it's Dave McKeegan from Greenback. Uh, we had a meetup here in Valley with a bunch of DC folks the other day, and uh, talking about some of the care provisions, and there was a lot of confusion around that. So I give you guys a ring and share some of the information we were talking about uh, regarding Obamacare, how it affects people living outside the U.S. Uh, So, you know, the first thing that people need to know about is this minimum essential coverage clause. This is basically the Obamacare tax. Now, if you're living outside the U.S. and you qualify under the physical presence, you know, that's where you're outside the U.S. for 330 days in a 65-day period, or you qualify as a bona fide resident, you know, you're a full resident in a foreign country, then not be impacted by this Obamacare tax. Uh, if you don't qualify, so if you're not outside the U.S. for uh, 330 days, you know, inside a foreign country for 330 days, or a bona fide resident of a foreign country, then you will be impacted by tax. Uh, now, first year, so, you know, the 2013 tax filing year, it would be a 1% tax on your income or a penalty starting at about $95, the greater of the two. And both of those then ramp up over the next three years. So anybody who's sort of on the fence about being an expat, you know, they're not quite meeting the physical presence test, uh, but they're enjoying their time abroad, needs to know about this and planning so that, you know, they're not uh, taxed an extra, you know, 1% this year, 2% next, 2% the year after. Anyway, I hope that helps, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks. Bye. David McKeegan, a uh, huge supporter of what we're doing here, and uh, always appreciate the helpful tips, David, and I look forward to seeing you in Bali very shortly. Ian, 
I'll tell you what, when we switched podcasts, you know, we lost all of our iTunes reviews, but Tropical NBA listeners have been coming through in a huge way, giving us that motivational boost by letting them letting us know that they enjoy the program. Would you mind doing a little bit of a live read with me? Just go through some of the the cool things that people have been saying about this program. Let's do it. We got quite a few now. I thought as a big a bit of a sugar pill, we could put on a string quartet in the background. Why not? Five stars. Peter Tran says, as someone in the beginning of his entrepreneurial journey, episode 219 was more helpful than you could ever know. It was like the stars aligned and everything you discussed was exactly what I needed to hear. Thank you so much, Peter. Awesome, Peter. And next we have Lewis, five stars. TMBA might just change your life. This podcast has a trajectory, has changed the trajectory of my life, career, entrepreneurial journey. Totally baller. Uh, check out the TMBA archives if you'd like to get some brilliant insight from Dan Ian's vast experience. Thank you, yes. Lewis. And I just put up the archives on the website just a few weeks ago, so you can go there and download our first 100 and very shortly 200 episodes. We're still working on that. Five stars from James Carp. Nonstop value bombs and idea juice refills. This podcast was effing magic. I've been doing some work to shift my mindset. The entire episode was pure golden idea juice. I'm loving that stuff. I'm loving the metaphor. I'll have a business up and running in good order, and I'll see you at DCBKK 2014. Next one, MDM, five stars, just amazing. Love, Dan and Ian. Two dudes. Yes, we are. Great advice. Been listening since the Lifestyle Business Podcast days. Uh, saw that TMBA has yet to pass 50 reviews, so I felt I needed to do my part and help these guys out. I suggest all listeners do the same. Yes, please, listeners, do the same. Send us a little bit of a review, if you don't mind, as MDM did. Yeah, buddy, we love it. Uh, five stars from our Canadian listenership, as good as it gets. This podcast will blow your mind, set in the power thirst voice. Honestly, I've learned so much from listening to Dan and Ian. These guys have literally changed my life. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to the show. This one is my favorite, Dan. It's just Brooke CJ, and all it says is, yeah, buddy, five stars. <laughs> and finally, five stars. If I could only listen to one business podcast, here you go. All right, that was the uh, String Quartet and iTunes review uh, segment. I I'm not assuming that's going to be a popular one. Let's reach into the mailbag. Jeremiah wrote us to say, uh, I recently signed a $182,000 deal with a corporate client. Can we get the applause effect for Jeremiah? You guys are the reason I started in the first place, especially the 1,000 true fans, 100 customers, and 10 true clients episode. I can't say enough about how much I attribute my success to you, Ian, and the show. Thank you so much. Jeremiah, uh, we will have a link to that episode. If you haven't yet listened to that, I do think it's an interesting concept, um, how this pyramid sort of works and how you can work people from the client level or, or from the fan level down to the client level and vice versa. Did you see, uh, Dan, did you see that tweet that I tweeted out a couple of weeks ago about the rapper who was following the 1,000 true fans? No. He followed the 1,000 true fans uh, deal and he sold his uh, record without a record deal. So it was pretty cool. Awesome. Uh, he didn't actually reference Kevin Kelly. <laughs> I don't think he and Kevin Kelly are a crew. But uh, <laughs> he, he, he somehow somehow the model got down to him. And, uh, cool. Hey, Joe sent us an email, which I think is a nice seg into this uh, in, into our main segment about our first business. I was listening to TMBA two nineteen where you're discussing niching down. How do you balance of having too small of a market of customers? So, for example, your cat furniture business that niche is super specific. But what validated this business idea for you to know? 
know that was an addressable market where there was that and that was big enough essentially. So basically saying cat furniture is sold to individuals, which is smaller margins, more customers needed, as opposed to B2B. It seems like more of a nice to have kind of thing than a need kind of thing. So I'm interested to hear how you got started and what helped you to pull the trigger. Thanks and I love the podcast, Joe. All right, so I got a lot to say about this one, Ian, because this is basically a great setup for what we're gonna talk about today, which is thevaletspot.com, because we launched thevaletspot.com and Modern Cat Designs at the same time. And we learned a lot of things about going consumer versus going business. And what we found is that with the valet spot, we found that it was very easy to acquire customers and to have profitable products, but that the market size was limited. And then when you look at the, the cat furniture side, it was very difficult to acquire uh, customers, but the market size is infinite. So what, what Joe is saying here is that um, so there's something deceiving about the cat market. So the, the reason why the cat market at first was appealing was you did the math, right? You said, oh, my gosh, there's 10 million cat owners in the United States. Yeah. If I just sell 1%, I'm going to be a rich man. That's new um, math, But the man. problem with that is it's like selling toothpaste. Like everybody needs it, and, and so it's very difficult to market to everybody at the same time. Like you want to spend your marketing dollars very precisely, um, and, and it's very expensive to market to, to cat owners because everyone is a cat owner essentially. So uh, when we launched Modern Cat Designs, um, our idea was to, was to target extremely high-end cat owners, uh, people that are wealthy and people that have very nice homes. And um, that that it's worked out okay, but I, I don't think it's a great market. Cat furniture is like toothpaste, actually. Like you said, it's it's nice to have, but it's not a necessity. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Hey, look, I'll I'll tell you how this episode came about, Ian. Today, today I was on a run, and I was writing the episode that we were going to do, and I was listening to you on Terry Lynn's Build My Online Store podcast. And Terry, uh, for the first time, dug into the story of the valet spot with you. And you told it so well while I was listening to it. I thought, this is probably what our listeners want to hear. So why don't we just put Terry Lynn's interview uh, with you? And I want to thank Terry for letting us do this. And do subscribe to Build My Online Store. Terry has a wonderful story. In fact, I think we corresponded via email uh, a long time ago about the genesis of that podcast, and it eventually allowed him to quit his job. Um, he's a fantastic DCer, and that thread where he told the story of starting a podcast from scratch was one of the absolute best threads in the DC last year. So thank you, Terry, for the wonderful interview with Ian, and thank you uh, for letting us feature it on this program. So again, subscribe to uh, buildmyonlinestore.com. And Ian, do you want to do any preambles before we get into the, the dirty here? No, let's uh, let's get into it. Yes, thanks, Terry, for letting us uh, syndicate this. And uh, you know, it took Terry to bring this out of me, Dan. We can't even bring this out of me on our own show. What are we doing, man? I know, man. We're worthless. All right, let's roll it. All right, so listeners, welcome to the show. Today, I've got the boss man, Ian Schoen, on the show. We're going to talk about B two B business. So, uh, Ian, uh, who are you, and what do you do? Hey, Terry, thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, so uh, back in 2000, oh geez, I guess eight now, me and my business partner, Dan, uh, at Tropical MBA, we started a little uh, manufacturing e-commerce business. And uh, one of the niches that we focused on back in the day, and that we still work on today, is valet parking equipment. 
And our website is thevalleyspot.com. Awesome. And so Dan was on the show very early on, like in episode four. So was this before Modern Cat Designs or around the same time? It was around the same time. And there's a lot of funny stories that uh, that that go around that. I understand the Valley Spot has a more B2B focus, right? Yeah, the Valley Spot is uh, all B2B. So we sell to valet parking operators. And I myself was once a valet parking operator. So uh, when we first got into it, I understood a little bit about the business and the industry. And I understood some of the problems that these guys were facing, especially uh, with their equipment. And so back in the day, a lot of the manufacturers that were making this stuff, it was uh, pretty much mom and pop style. And uh, Dan and I came from a mass manufacturing background. Um, We had some ties in China and things like that. We started to look at some of the problems that these guys were having and we thought that we could uh, solve them through manufacturing and design. And so that's exactly what we did. In 2008, we came out with our uh, with our first valet podium. Mm-hmm. And so what are your main products line right now? Uh, mainly key boxes and podiums for these guys. You know, we solved the problem of key storage and then also creating a presence. So some Sometimes these guys don't even store keys, and it's just like a kiosk or a reference uh, for for you to pull up to the restaurant. You stop at the valet parking uh, at the box there. Yeah, I know in some places in Asia, it's even ghetto. It's like a cardboard piece of cardboard with like holes on it, and then they just put the keys on there. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the way that it was. You know, is is you know, 20 years ago, it was kind of like that. People started manufacturing equipment, and then, like I said, when we got into uh, when we got into the industry, we started mass manufacturing the equipment and took a design approach to it. So, how did you know that other people weren't mass manufacturing this stuff when you guys got started? Uh, it's a very, very small industry. And uh, it, it's, it's fairly transparent to see what's going on. And one of our main value propositions at the, at the time was mass manufacturing um, because we could bring the cost down. But really the reason why we got into it was uh, a couple of reasons. One was no one was serving this industry with design. And I'm an industrial designer. I'm a product designer. That's what I went to school for. So we thought that we could actually bring design into this industry. And I think that that was really important for these guys because they were just dealing with these, essentially these black boxes. And no one was putting a lot of thought into uh, the user experience around these black boxes. So we were able to kind of design the experience, not only in the product, but also customer service and lead times and all that. The other thing that we brought to this industry is is the customer service and the attention to what the customers were saying. So no one had uh, taken a customer forward approach to the industry. Everyone was uh, just kind of pumping out these products. And we actually wanted to learn about the issues and the problems that these guys faced on a day-to-day basis and build that into our products. So how did you size that up when you were kind of had a valet experience and how did you do the customer development side? Uh, customer development. So first things first, you know, the first product that we built was absolutely awful. We, we just didn't really know what we were doing at the time. But luckily, um, a lot of those uh, customers gave us a second chance and we were able to iterate on that first product and, and get them a version two. And now I think we're on like version 10 or 15, something, something like that. The way that we got into it was was through customer development. So we had an idea of what we thought that they wanted. We delivered it. Um, it was partially right. And then we, over, over the years, we've just made a series of tweaks to get it to where it is today. So when you're hustling for customer, are you just walking up to like valet parking spots, asking from the manager? Or are you like cold calling? Or uh, Back in 2008, you know, Dan and I, we also had a, a lot of interest in the internet and we wanted to do something online. And so the interesting thing too about the valet parking industry um, is a lot of it wasn't online back then and still a lot of of it isn't online today. So we wanted to do this thing where we were manufacturing, but then we were also marketing online because we had been studying, uh, you know, about internet marketing and whatnot back in 2008. Uh, we threw up a Yahoo uh, store, believe it or not. <laughs> Those dinosaurs. Yeah. And, and that's how we, uh, that's how we sold our first products was through that, 
that Yahoo store. So we really saw an opportunity back then to market online to these guys. And so, yes, we were doing cold calling. Uh, we were doing cold approaches, but we were also marketing online. And uh, it, was kind of, it was kind of a unique time because people were just starting to search for this kind of stuff online. You know, we've got a couple other niches that we're working on right now too, uh, Terry, and a lot of those guys, uh, we're following the same model. So we're, we're taking industries that aren't traditionally online, but we know that they will be online eventually and we're targeting them. And, and that's what we did with the valet industry back then. I don't know if it was that planned out. I mean, we just knew that no one was selling online. It ended up working out for us in terms of timing. Mm-hmm. And how much does one of these valet boxes cost on ballpark range? Uh, anywhere from 400 to 2500 generally. Gotcha. So with kind of with kind of like a B2B background where these users aren't really that maybe internet savvy like we are, was it hard to get them to buy this at first since the price point is pretty high? Absolutely. Yeah. I think any product over uh, $500, it's generally very hard to sell online. And so, you know, the way that you see our site today, I mean, there's a, it's changed a lot from what it used to be. And there's a lot of information and there's a lot of education on our site now. Yeah. I think initially it was, it was very hard to sell online. You know, one of the other problems that we had selling online was that these products uh, ship by freight. And um, they generally go on a pallet because they're so large. And no one had shipping calculators or anything like that for free. Everyone had shipping cal- calculators, you know, for UPS and parcel and things like that. So, you know, there's very few industries where people are shipping large things like this online, you know, furniture being uh, one of the exceptions. So not only did they have to buy a $500 unit online, they had to pay $170 in shipping. Yeah, and so that's, that's generally a hard sale to make online, you know, in the, in the 500 to $1,000 range. Gotcha. Especially back in kind of 2008, 2009, when kind of e-commerce was still growing and kind of people are just getting online too. Yeah, but obviously, you know, we, uh, we had our phone number on there, large and in charge, right? So we had the opportunity to talk to people. And that's something that's really important with B2B is, is, is a lot of times it's very high friction sales. And uh, that's something that we've carried with us from day one. And, and we haven't really tried to move away from because there's a lot of advantages to that. Products that uh, you see over at the Valley Spot, we manufacture. And so, you know, it's a little bit different, right, than uh, a traditional like e-commerce business. Like we're trying to figure out words and names for the, the kind of business that we do. The one that I like uh, right now is uh, Bricks and Clicks. So, you know, we're not actually reselling the products over at the Valley Spot. We are manufacturing those products. Gotcha. And so let's go back to the first product a little bit. You were talking about earlier how it was just a complete disaster uh, with your first customer. So how did you kind of get this first customer to buy it in the first place? Uh, in 2008, we showed up to the uh, National Valley Parking Association. And at the time, it was a, it was a fairly small group. And it was very concentrated, and these were owners, and they would all meet to uh, discuss the problems that they were experiencing in their business. And uh, there was very few vendors that were showing up there at the time. So we got the opportunity to really sit in and, and, and pick these guys' brains and, and understand what the problems were that they were experiencing. And so that was extremely valuable to us. And when we showed up to that first conference, we were in development with our first product. They were able to provide us with a lot of good insight. And so, you know, unfortunately, we didn't deliver the best product the first time. But uh, eventually we got there. So you know, to answer your question, one of the ways that we did it was through very high friction relationships, was asking these guys what they want, delivering them a, prob- uh, a product, them telling us what they thought about it, us delivering the next product, and you know, so on and so forth for the last six years. Gotcha. And so one thing you wanted to touch about before the call was kind of iterating on customer feedback. right? And so you got your first product of the first customer. You know, they said it sucked. They gave you a second chance. You know, I mean, it probably hurts, right? The first time you get that feedback. Like, How did you guys deal with that? Yeah. It was super scary. So uh, the 
the nitty gritty of the story is um, there was like a fundamental flaw in the design of our first product and the wheels would essentially fall off. And that's not good if you have a rolling cabinet <laughs> with the sole purpose of, it, of it needing to roll around. And so, um, you know, we identified this right when the container came in. We said, oh, this is going to be a massive problem. It was something that I overlooked. And so we had, we had built in a, cu- a couple ideas on how to solve it. We had ordered some extra bases. Uh, luckily, we had made our product modular. That was actually one of the value propositions that we thought was important to our customers early on is uh, we decided to make a, a valet podium that folded down. Because like I said, traditionally, these guys experience very high costs when you ship a podium across the country. It's $150, $170. So we thought by um, making it knock down and assemble, you know, making it so they could assemble it, we would ship it to them in parts and then they would assemble it. Well, that turned out that they weren't too interested in that. They'd just rather pay the $150 and have it shipped whole. But the advantage that, that left us was since we made the product knock down, we were able to replace components. And so that was really like the lifesaver for us is when these bases were failing, we were able to uh, come up with a solution and, and, sh- and ship them the refurbished base. Now, I can't say everybody was happy about that. I, I know we lost a lot of customers, but I think we've gained a lot of this guys back over the years. Let me touch on the uh, the customer development uh, point that you, you touched on. And this is something that's, I think, pretty unique. I know it's definitely unique in our industry. And I think it's unique to a lot of customer or a lot of um, people making products is uh, we take customer feedback very, very, very seriously. And we solicit it all the time and we write it all down. And what that allows us to do, I think, is develop the best products on the market. And uh, it's something that our factory hates, but our customers love. Because every time we place a purchase order with our factory for an existing product, we're generally making some kind of tweak to make that product better. So, you know, one of the last things that we did uh, in the last three or four months was we beefed up our handles and we beefed up our drawers because we saw a couple of them failing. We we heard a couple of people talking about it. And so that's it's really... It's really something nice that you can do for your customers, and it's something that people notice. I mean, you're, you're buying this podium for six years, and every other time you're getting a new podium, you're seeing updates to things that were failing or things that weren't perfect. You know, that's what we do. So when a customer has, like, a broken handle like that, in that case, do you guys fix it and send them a new one, or how does that work? Absolutely, yeah, all the time. And, um, and without, without, any, uh, without a lot of questions. I mean, the questions that we're interested in asking them is how did it fail so it won't happen again and generally we'll send it out for free because look the most important thing that you can do is 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 keep your customers around and i'm not going to fight about a five dollar handle on a five hundred dollar unit right you just send that out with no questions because there's bigger problems to solve yeah and i think especially in a b2b environment where it's more high friction long-term relationship i think if you piss one person off it could be a big part of your business too yeah and the, the valley industry is it's a it's a really awesome industry and i think we've been really lucky to be a part of it and and part of the reason why i think we've been so successful in there is word of mouth you know in b2b i think that you see a lot more word of mouth or, or it's a lot easier to, to kind of lean on that kind of thing you know these guys they all walk around they all see their competition they all see the kind of equipment they're using they all see the kind of uniforms that they're wearing and so you know the more locations that we're out the more opportunity that we have for that word of mouth and especially if you're providing excellent customer service and products, you know, that just goes a long way. Mm-hmm. And what are some sample questions you ask your customers when getting the feedback? We solicit feedback and, and we try to be as open as possible. So, you know, we want to be the kind of company that people approach with their problems, not the kind of company that people hide. Because a lot of times the customer that you don't have anymore doesn't tell you why they leave, right? They just disappear. And so uh, that's a bad position to be in because then you don't have any feedback. So, you know, one of the things that we learned and that we started doing very early in the game was just simply calling our customers and asking them how their product was going or how their experience with our product was going. 
And that's a very, very hard call to make, especially when you know that there's potentially something wrong with your product. So even in version one and two and three with our valet podiums, we would still call up those customers and ask them how it's going because it was just critical that we got the feedback. And, you know, Terry, a lot of times I would call them and know exactly what was wrong. I would say, you know, how's that drawer working out or how are those wheels? And they say, well, you know, one of them fell off. You know, that's a really hard conversation to have because then you actually have to do something about it. You have to spend time and money and resources to fix it. But if you can fix it, that's a customer that you're going to have for life. So, you know, interacting with these customers on that deep level, I just think is so important if you want to build a good lifetime value customer. Yeah. And it sounds like you're not afraid to use the phone because a lot of people kind of like we know, they grow up on the internet. They think everything can be done with email, kind of chat. And what I was like, I think the phone's a really underrated tool. I mean, would you agree with that? Uh, definitely. There's a couple things about the phone. So you can look at our website now and there's a ton of information on there, especially on the product pages. And actually the product page is something that I'm really proud of. Our, our designer, um, she revamped that and I think that she did a really good job. Um, but there's, there's a lot of information on that page. And one of the reasons is because every time we get a phone call about something, if we get that phone call enough, we'll put up that information online. And so the idea there is, is to build a resource for your customers, right? Because the reason why you want to get on your on the phone with the customer is to close the sale or to have a deeper conversation about the product, right? And uh, that's something that we're definitely not afraid of is, is getting on the phone. But I do believe that um, you can put a lot of the information that you go over time and time again on the phone that doesn't really add value on your website. You know, the idea is to get as many people to buy online as possible. But if they need to talk to somebody, yes, we're there for them 100% to do that. So let's move on into the next part of the business. So one thing, I think we've been following you on is that you're moving into software now, right? So you're going from kind of e-commerce B2B product in the software. So kind of like from a 10,000 foot view or 40,000 foot view, like what's the story behind this and the rationale? Right. It probably doesn't look like it makes a lot of sense from the outside, right? <laughs> you're manufacturing steel products and now you want to make software. So the idea is this. You know, we've been manufacturing these uh, this valley parking equipment for a long time now. And like I said, because we interact with our customers hardcore, we understand a lot of their problems. And so, you know, there's some guys that are manufacturing or, or making, I should say, uh, software for the valley industry. And some of them do a pretty good job. What we started to realize uh, uh, about six months to a year ago is like, look, these guys can monetize our customers better than we can. You know, all we can do is sell them a $399 podium. These guys are selling uh, essentially memberships or service subscriptions to software. And we know a lot about the industry and we know a lot of people in the industry. It became apparent that, hey, we need to get on the ship. This is There's a higher value that we can provide our customers, right? So right now we're, we're providing them with some value. And I think that that's great. And, and, and we work hard to do that. But I think there's more that we can do for them. So we're, we're striving to do more for our customers. So the basis is that you guys are already doing the physical side. You're just moving up the value chain with the whole operations and kind of running the whole valet business too. Because I see you guys also have a podcast. Kind of you're doing the content marketing side of this business too. Correct. Yeah. And we're probably overbaking the pie a little bit. You know, the valet industry is like a very, very small industry. And so, you know, we're, but yeah, Terry, we are taking a lot of these internet marketing ideas and we're applying them to the valet industry. You know, the podcast is one of those things. I think the podcast is really cool because, you know, a lot of these guys don't get the opportunity to talk about their business a lot. But a lot of these guys have really cool things to say and they know so much about the industry. A lot of them have been in the industry for so long. So I think for us, it's, it's, it's a cool opportunity to provide them with the platform to share what they know. You know, and nobody's really doing that right now. And so that's why I feel like the podcast is a good opportunity. It's like, hey, let's put these guys in front of the mic who aren't traditionally talking about their business 
Um, and, and let's see, let's see what they have to say. Yeah, and I think the interesting side is that you're also helping them with different angles. Like I saw you guys had like an insurance agent on the podcast, whereas you can talk about running a valet business. Well, how do you deal with insurance? Kind of the upcoming changes in the U.S. too. And so you're really kind of adding the long-term relationship uh, down the road. Yeah, I mean, like I said, our our our, our vision here is is to um, supply these guys with not only like the best equipment, but with the best resources too. So like we, we want to serve these people. These people are our customers and we want to figure out all the ways in which we can provide them value. So if it's with uh, information about insurance, if it's with software, if it's with valet parking equipment, we want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. And so you've had a great amount of domain knowledge with your customers. So how do you translate like a specific problem they have into a software. Would you have an example you can share with us? Yeah, sure. So in, in the valet industry, for example, uh, one of them is time tracking. So uh, these guys are basically uh, running around. Uh, you know, a lot of valet companies, they have multiple locations. So say you have five locations, you might only have 10 employees and those employees kind of jump around from location to location uh, as they're needed. Um, and so, you know, there's a time tracking problem to solve there, right? Where do these guys log in and log out? Um, if they're not next to a computer. And so that's one of the problems that the software addresses. Um, and there's a number of other problems like that that we can address. You know, these these valley parking operations, they're a lot of times they're operating out in the middle of a parking lot, quite literally, where there's no power, there's not a lot of access to resources. And so these guys have to do a lot with a little bit. And so, um, you know, helping them to track their performance, help them to track their progress, their payments, things like that. These are all problems that exist in the valet industry. So this would be like if I have an employee that's at someone's house, how do I know how many hours he's working? I could have like a check-in on the app that tracks his time, something like that. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Pretty simple. I see. And so how many features did you decide to put in the first MVP for your first customers? Well, like like any uh, like any product, feature creep starts to set in, right? And that's, this is especially true. Like the advantage of, I guess, of manufacturing products um, and, and not bits is that you have to have an endpoint. The software is a little bit different. You can push a version to the app store and then you can push another version the next day and all that. So it's like feature creep starts to set in. So I think for us, that's one of the most difficult parts about developing software is trying to manage that feature creep. And, you know, Terry, the, the, like, the same thing happens on your website, on your e-commerce site, right? It's like you just keep making these tweaks, right? But a lot of times they don't necessarily correlate to revenue or to more customers or anything like that. So it's like you really have to, you really have to adjust. You really have to say this is the minimum viable that I need. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my lure out in the water and I'm going to see if a fish bites. And if not, then I'm going to reel that in and I'm going to put some kind of different lure on there. Gotcha. And so reception of the software, uh, you know, how do you deal with that? Is this very similar to how you did it with the physical products? A hundred percent. Very, very high touch. You know, there's a bunch of different ways in software, obviously, that you can gather data that you're not able to gather in the physical product space, right? So it's like we can see when errors occur, we can see the workflow, all that stuff. Uh, and there's a, there's a bunch of different tools that we're using for that. But in products, it's a lot harder to kind of see what's going on. You know, in terms of high touch, absolutely, man. We want to be on the phone with these guys, talking to them as much as possible, especially with the first 20 customers, man. You want to be on the phone with them, learning, you know, this is working, this isn't working. Why would you guys build this? We never use that. The interesting thing, I guess, about the software in the Valley uh, parking industry is it's a big deal in the sense that your your business actually has to shift. Some of the processes in your business have to shift to adapt to the software. There's a pretty steep barrier to end there because um, you know you've actually got to convince these guys to change their process so I think that that's one of the most difficult parts about the adoption is that people have to change the way that they do business in order for it to work with the app and so trying to figure out a um, 
a system and a piece of software that integrates the most smoothly, I think is a big challenge that we're coming up against. Yeah. But once you've gotten to work and you know, they're using your products, they're using your software, like your lifetime value just goes through the roof. You know, we were talking a little bit uh, pre-show about uh, B2B versus B2C. And uh, I, I want to talk about this for a minute. And I think there's a, there's a ton of advantages. You know, we've got one company that that serves B2C, and that's moderncapdesigns.com. And that company's been good to us. It's been a lot of fun to develop those products for those customers. Um, but it's very, very hard um, to get repeat customers, and it's also very hard to get feedback on your, on your products. These B2B guys, they're very incentivized to help you make the best product because that's what helps their business run better, Right. So you create a business that people use, or you create a product that people use in a business environment on a day-to-day basis. They want that product to be the best that it can be, and so it's it's really easy to kind of solicit feedback from people. Um, when you're building B2C products, it's very difficult to get that kind of feedback. You know, the user engagement on a B2C product is almost non-existent. I mean, they buy the product, they either use it or they don't, and then. Hopefully, they'll tell their friends about it, but it's not very transparent in the ways that they do that. Building up lifetime value of a customer on the B2C side, I think it's I think it's much more difficult. I mean, the marketing challenges that you go up against in the B2C environment, I mean, it's just, it's just huge. Yeah, so one thing this kind of brings another topic is that kind of if you look at e-commerce like five, ten years ago, really all you had to do was just slap up a store, rank for some keywords, and then you have a business. But now, is this no longer defensible moving forward? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think that's an interesting thing, uh, Terry, right? It's like the idea of e-commerce. And I think it's like the new, I think it's like the new internet marketing hotbed. Like everyone's like rushing around to like start a, a Shopify site, you know? It's like, well, where, where can I source some, some coffee mugs and, and throw up an e-commerce site? Like I got an idea for a coffee store mug, right? I don't really think that that's a super sustainable business. And, uh, you know, we've had purely um, e-commerce sites before, basically dropship sites. Because I think building a brand and building customers is so much more valuable than building a, a an e-commerce store. And it's so much more defensible. You know, when you're starting an e-commerce store, these days, like you're dealing with Amazon and a lot of these big players, Hey Needle, Wayfair, all these guys, you know? And so it's like, what are you really providing to them? You know, are you doing content marketing? Are you becoming an expert? Are you talking about the industry or are you just selling products? I think if you're just selling products and you're doing it for maybe the same price or cheaper, you know, maybe you've got a couple SEO or PPC tricks up your sleeve and you like get high in the rankings like that only lasts so long. You know, people are going to outspend you on PPC and things like that. So I think you really got to focus on on building a brand. You know, the Manal guys, uh, Jimmy and Doug, they're a great example of that. Right. And they're like building a brand around a product. When I look at our company, I say, yeah, we do e-commerce. We sell products online, but that's not what we are. We're not an e-commerce company. Right. We're a product design and development company, and e-commerce is one of the channels in which we sell our, our, our products. So I think you know, just, just going online and just saying, I'm going to sell products online, I don't think that's extremely defensible, and I don't think it's necessarily the future. In, in the sense that how a business has to add value, e-commerce is just one channel, right? Kind of like how like our friend John Myers does UI UX design, he adds value that way. You know, everyone's solving a problem in the end. It's just that you can't rely on one channel moving forward is what you're saying. Yeah, I don't think you can rely on one channel. I think I, I, I really like question, you know, what a lot of these guys are doing by just like jumping on and, and starting an e-commerce store. Like, look, I, I think honestly, the truth is it's going to work out still for the next two to three years. I think that you're going to be able to throw up an e-commerce store selling Christmas trees and drive traffic to it through PPC and SEO and stuff like that and maybe make a decent living out of it. I don't know. I don't think that that's going to last. If I built that Christmas tree store today, I would really focus on building value in a brand. And I think the other thing that you know these guys that want to start e-commerce sites need to focus on is actually developing and designing the product. Like 
If I'm going to get into e-commerce for Christmas trees, the only reason I'm going to do that is so I can gain expertise in, into the industry and into the product side. So I want to sell 5,000 Christmas trees a year so I understand what people are buying and what people value so then I can go turn around and find a Christmas tree factory and actually manufacture that product because then I'm going to own the whole supply chain, right? And I'm going to be able to pivot and build a brand. Yeah, so because like, so it sounds like you're bearish on dropshipping because you don't own the product, you're not manufacturing it, someone else can sell it and it's not defensible too. You don't, you don't own a lot of the process. You know, a cool thing happened uh, like two years ago, Terry, this was actually when you could see your, <laughs> your where your traffic was coming from. As we know, that's not the case anymore. Uh, in terms of Google, something happened two years ago. People started searching more for our brand than they were our top key terms. And I think it's like, well, our, our top key terms aren't as important to us anymore. What's important is our brand because that's people how people recognize us, right? It's like calling it a tissue versus Kleenex, right? When you look at the data, like people are searching for Kleenex, there's value in that. Yeah, so if you compare the trajectories of, say, modern cat designs and valet spot, like what was be like, say, the difference in terms of growth over the past few years? You know, something happened uh, around 2008, 2009. We basically became more passionate about solving the problems of, of valet parking operators than we did um, cat owners. And I think that happened for a number of different reasons. One is because uh, working for the valet parking industry is a lot more rewarding than it is working for cats because they're so apathetic. Now. <laughs> <laughs> right? The owners are excited about their products, but like I said, it's a, it's a lot more rewarding for us to work in an industry and in an environment where we kind of have peers and comrades and, and that wasn't necessarily the case for for the for the cat industry and so although i think we're still passionate about delivering cool products for the cat industry we don't work on it with the same veracity or, or, or i should say the same velocity as we do on the valet side mm -hmm. and do you find it interesting because i understand modern cats was started kind of like out of your dream right when you were starting out to like make cat furniture and Kind of, you have a different view on it now. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was um, probably not something that I would do again. So, geez, a, a little story about modern cat designs was, yeah, back in 2007, uh, we just saw the overabundance of, of dog products. Um, you know, dog owners had whole aisles at Petco of, uh, of designer products, and, and cat owners had nothing. Uh, they just had this weird carpeted cat condo. And you, if, if you're a guy and you're 25 and you had it in your living room, you're definitely not going to get laid, right? You drag it into the closet or whatever. So there's a, there's a big, we thought that there was a big opportunity. And I, I think that there is to develop modern cat furniture for kind of upscale homes. And so, yeah, that was, that was kind of the vision back then. The danger in having that kind of idea is that it's very untested. It's very hard to validate without spending a lot of money. So, we, I mean, we took a big risk back then. We designed this crazy piece of cat furniture and it kind of like looked pretty weird. And we spent like 15, 20 grand to like get a half a container of it over here. And that's very dangerous, right? Probably something that I, that I wouldn't do again. Um, it, it ended up working out. We ended up being able to spin that off into a couple different products. But, you know, we had a lot of that inventory for a long time. And, uh, you know, when, when I'm doing like inventory projections and stuff like that, I like to have inventory turns of three to six months. And, and you know, some of that cat furniture stuck around for a long time before we were able to sell it. So, you know, as like a first move, uh, it, it definitely wasn't the best. Yeah, because I guess if you look on the other side, you got like our friends Jimmy and Doug at Manal. I mean, they're kind of within the same boat too, right? They're like, yeah, we're going to design this bag that's going to revolutionize travel. And kind of, you know, I guess like Dan thought they were crazy at first and, you know, look at where they are now too. So Yeah, 
we, I think we all thought they were crazy. I said, uh, guys, you sure that you want to do this, man? Just like, look at my life, man. Is that, is that what you want, man? You want all these tears? You want all these sleepless nights with inventory and all this stuff? But hey, look, those guys are way smarter than I am. And, uh, you know, they had a huge advantage, which I think is really cool right now. And that's uh, Kickstarter, right? Now we've got these platforms and we've got these people with basically their wallets just opening and cash falling out on the ground, you know? just frothing at the mouth to buy any new product. Now, I, I know that that's not the case with Jimmy and Doug. I think that they have a really solid product and it, and it really solves a problem. But they've got this amazing opportunity because uh, they, there's this captive audience now in which you can launch and um, develop products with. And so I think that that's a huge advantage now that we're seeing over 2007 and eight. So if you want to start a physical products company, um, I think you've got a huge light up now. You've got Kickstarter. You know, obviously you're a big B2B guy. You know, what's one B2B mistake you made starting out that if someone's getting into B2B, should, they should be aware of? One of the uh, problems that, we've, that we struggle with in the beginning and, and we're trying to fix this is uh, trying to pick a niche that's kind of large enough to satisfy or satisfy or quench our thirst, right? And so the valet parking industry, um, very awesome niche to be a part of, but it's it's fairly small. And so when I think about uh, my ambition level and our team's ambition level and things like that, I think um, we we would probably be better off um, picking niches that were a little bit larger. And and so that's you know that's part of the reason Terry why we've started three or four different other um, manufacturing e-commerce businesses clicks and bricks, right, is because um, the valet industry wasn't big enough to kind of uh, satisfy our hunger. And so I guess, you know, starting off, it's it's cool to be a uh, large fish in a big pond. Or wait, how does that go? Large fish in a small pond, right? But I, I think um, in the future, um, or, or if I was just starting out, I would pick a, a, a larger niche. You know, competition is a good thing, right? When you go in and you see a bunch of competitors, um, as long as you can figure out what your differentiator is and, and how you're going to win, I think that's okay. So when we got to the valet parking industry, we didn't have a lot of competition, and um, that worked out okay for us. But um, it was also an indicator that the uh, that the niche wasn't very big. So if I had to go back and do it again, I would pick a larger one. So how far did you guys realize that the pool was too small for you guys? Uh, yesterday, <laughs> uh, it was uh, it was several years ago, and and, and we just realized like. Uh, yeah, that we're going to have to start pivoting. So, you know, we made a pivot. Um, we made a pivot actually uh, last year, and um, that's the portablebarcompany.com. And we're, it's a very similar approach to what we're doing over at the Valet Spot, uh, but with a different niche, basically. Yeah, taking very similar manufacturing kind of philosophy into a different market, right? I can tell like both products are kind of like the metal box type of things. And I'm not a designer, but I can kind of get the feeling. No, right. you're exactly right. And that's the advantage, right? Is so you take your, uh, you take your platform, you take what you're good at and you try and pivot it into other niches. Now, if the valet parking industry was much bigger, would we spend our energy um, pivoting into something like that? Probably not. Um, if we could just manufacture and, and, and focus all of our attention on one marketing message on one industry, I would much prefer to do that. And so just to wrap things up, you know, for the valet parking industry, do you think it's still possible to grow your business by, say, two times? Or do you really have to kind of move up the value chain like you're doing with soft right now? Uh, yeah, I think you have, to, you have to move up the value chain for where we're at right now. And you have to, you have to figure out the bigger problems to solve for these guys. And uh, look, like we've been working with these, with these uh, people for like six and seven years now. And so we, we've started to understand a lot of those problems. And so that's part of the reason why we're, uh, why we're moving up the value chain. And uh, you know, my hope is that we can provide them with even more value. So a company could come to us and 
they can get their equipment. They can also get their software, and we can we can be a place where we we solve a lot more of the problems than we do. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, you know, we were just in Bangkok earlier, and one thing I've noticed talking to so many e-commerce manufacturing people is that once they get like a year or two into it, they realize they should have chose a different niche. Like you were saying, cat furniture, B to C. You know, getting feedback's really hard, but then kind of valet spot. You know, there's a limit to the ceiling you can grow. And kind of like we were talking to. I was talking to Simon Stock earlier in Bangkok. He was telling, yeah, he's selling surfboard racks, but you know, just assembling and shipping those is a pain in the ass. So he's getting the supplements. And like, when you look back on this, is there just no perfect niche, or like, what do you say to someone that's just starting out? Yeah, good question. I, I don't think that there is a perfect niche. I think that a lot of it's like contingent on your um, your personal experiences, um, some of your um, some of your skill sets. You know what you're interested in. I think that's probably the key, though, is to pick something that you're interested in, something that you're passionate about. Like back in the back in 2007, 2008, I was really passionate about, and I still am, about the valet parking industry and the products that are there. Um, you know, eventually, I think what happens as a business owner and as a guy that's involved in in everything in the business is you start to become passionate about the process, right? So, you know, we've still got people on staff on a day-to-day basis that look at those podiums and, and figure out the best podium to manufacture and to design. But like my job now is, is to be passionate about the process. And so I think, you know, niche selection, um, it matters a lot in terms of like what your goals are, maybe in terms of revenue and, and things like that. But, you know, focus on the process, right? And it's like, it doesn't matter really if you're selling flowers or if you're selling valet podiums, like if you're passionate about the process and you're passionate about your customers, I think that you're, you'll find yourself in a winning situation. Yeah. Process versus event, right? Like uh, MJ DeMarco says, which we're all a big fan of. Totally. <laughs> awesome. All right, boss man. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. So I'm going to list all your businesses now. If I missed one, uh, let me know. So you guys can find out more about Ian at the valetspot.com. Uh, if you're into cat furniture, moderncatdesigns.com. If you're into portable bars, uh, the portable bar company.com. And so, uh, Bossman, how do we find you uh, online? Yeah. And, uh, if you're interested in, in, in me talking, uh, about more about how we run these businesses and, and what our lives look like, uh, you can follow Dan and I, uh, I am at anything Ian on Twitter and Dan, my business partner is at tropical MBA and we riff about this stuff at tropical got a weekly podcast i know you've been there terry and uh, we pump out some blog posts as well so check us out there all right man thanks so much for being on the podcast and uh, we'll see you soon man cheers yeah buddy well thanks so much terry for having me on your podcast it was a lot of fun to talk about the valet spot and some of the different things that we've gone through i just want to clarify one thing uh i think it was early in the morning or uh, i'm trying to fish for an excuse here i don't really have one dan but i i, I kept mincing my words uh there's two two different words I want to talk about is e-commerce and dropship. Dropship being you buy a product and then you simply resell it uh, and dropship it out of your warehouse or a third-party warehouse. E-commerce, the definition of e-commerce, simply doing business online. And so I, I confused those words a couple times uh, throughout the episode, but I want to be clear. Most of the time I was talking about uh, the end of dropship business, not the end of e-commerce business. Cool. Cool. Hey, I got to say, I was incredibly uh, impressed or just interested, I guess. It was cool to hear you talk about it. And uh, I think you did a great job. And I'm glad that Terry allowed us to share it on this program. I know that uh, people have been clamoring to hear about that story. So I'm hoping that people find it useful. And if there's any other questions, if, if it'd be useful for you guys to hear more information from us, check out uh, the show notes of this episode. We're, we're always in the comments every week. It's at tropicalmba.com slash 
valet parking. And while we're going old school, Ian, we might as well just do a homage to uh, the LBPs of yore and encourage the audience to go make a cold call in the interim because that's what started the valet spot. Uh, you know, it was just a bunch of cold calls, basically. You remember that? Yeah, and everybody's uh, everybody's been asking for it. So, uh, Dan, I've been listening to the uh, new Built to Spill record. I'm not sure if you've uh, downloaded that one yet. But there is actually a song on the new Built to Spill record where he talks about going to make a cold call. So we'll there see this go. week in the comments if anybody's a Built to Spill fan, if they <laughs> identified the song and what it is. That would be Well, fun. there you go. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Tropical MBA Podcast. We're here every Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll see you next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.